Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Mark Dalton. I'm the Special Projects Lead with the United Nations Office of Information and Communications Technology here in New York, and I'll be guest hosting today's discussion with Jean-Martin Bauer, who is a New York-based advisor on digital from WFP, the World Food Programme. So Jean-Martin, welcome to you. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Um, To get us started, I know that many listeners here will know about the World Food Programme, but can you tell us uh, what your role is there and what you do at WFP? So, Mark, I'm the newly arrived advisor on digital in New York. What that means is I work as part of the WFP team that manages UN affairs here in New York. It's a small team representing a big organization vis-a-vis another big organization, so we, sometimes we feel caught in the middle. But my role is really to talk to people working in the secretariat, the, the agencies, the member states about what the implications are of the digital changes the world is going through and the digital transformation the sector, the humanitarian sector is going through. And also make sure my colleagues sitting in Rome are fully aware and fully engaged in these important processes. Great. No, And of course, WFP is pretty much in the lead on data and digital and AI initiatives. Can you give us an overview of the initiatives you've been working on at WFP and, and sort of what are you most proud of or, or what do you think has been having the greatest impact? In the area of data, what uh, I'm especially proud of was the work I did. Uh, this was between 2012 and 2017 to get mobile phone surveys started at WFP. This was the mobile VAM project, um, VAM being vulnerability analysis and mapping. These are the eyes and ears of WFP. What um, the situation was then was that WFP really had expertise in food security analysis and data collection, data management, uh, reporting on what became the SDG2 indicators. That's something we were doing quite well, but we relied on uh, the big survey. That was the the way uh, we would acquire the data. We would send out large teams after a week-long training uh, to every corner of the country with a questionnaire booklet that was usually pretty hefty. The people would come back, the data would be entered by hand. And maybe after six months, you'd get a watershed moment where you've got the results, they're launched in front of the media, and you've got statistics to work with. So about a decade ago, the situation was different. Technology had evolved. The uh, appetite for data had also evolved with uh, more conflicts and fast-breaking emergencies taking place all over the world. And it seemed that we needed something more flexible to complement that approach. And that's when we started testing voice surveys in humanitarian settings. The pilot was actually funded by the Humanitarian Innovation Fund in in London at Save the Children in Elra. We were able to get voice data collected in in Somalia and uh, Eastern DRC. It worked very well. Now, this is a decade ago, but I had people saying, it's not going to work. This is is impossible. People will lie. And uh, we, we saw that it was actually quite effective, a great way to acquire data. And very quickly, not the pilot wasn't even over. We had a two-year pilot. Uh, the Ebola emergency happened in West Africa, and all of a sudden we scaled up to those three countries with automated surveys. We were administering uh, simple food security questionnaires over IVR, over SMS, and uh, all of a sudden we're getting 
tons of data at a fraction of the cost of a traditional survey. For me, that was really a moment that, that I was quite proud of. Now, of course, those methods were scaled to many other contexts. Uh, data is collected in that way in places like Yemen, Syria, South Sudan, the, the major emergencies of the world. But the team working on uh, hunger monitoring in Rome has been augmenting all those methods after my departure, of course, with artificial intelligence, with machine learning. Right. Can I just ask about, so the, the big shift there was voice surveys going out to mobile phones, basically. So you had to have connectivity in these crises, but basically people were trying to assist, beneficiaries were able to respond to them. And, and how did that shrink the kind of time to insight for you guys? The example I, I like giving is the example of Malawi. In Malawi, we were able to turn around a nationwide survey, so with responses from all parts of Malawi, in 24 hours. Wow. If you're going to do that with uh, people being trained, going into cars, traveling to every corner of the country, coming back, data entry. So we would be able to, um, I would say, from data collection to insights with mobile, especially since it was done every month, we were able to have, I'd say, insights after maybe 48, 72 hours. That, that was possible because also the analysis was also automated. We built a statistics engine that, uh, and the surveys were standardized and automated. So it made it possible for us to see uh, the results very, very quickly after having uh, uh, done quality checks. Now, if you do that face-to-face, -face, it's very difficult to do it in less than uh, four to six weeks. Yeah, no, I was going to say, so you've shrunk that time to insight, if you like, from six weeks or even months, perhaps, in some situations, to basically within two days or a matter of hours. That's really significant. That was a revolutionary, and uh, it, it was something that needed to happen in the, in the humanitarian world when... Um, those of us in, in North America, so I know we've got people in, in Montreal and in New York, we get uh, spammed by SMS. We get uh, voice calls from telemarketers. Uh, so this, these things were tried and tested, but not, not yet ruled out in the humanitarian world. But uh, everyone's got a mobile now in, in the geographies humanitarians work in. So the time was right. That's great. And so you mentioned the hunger monitoring team. Did you say that you're now, that team is now using AI? to that's right the analysis that's right so what's really interesting with what they've done is that um the the foundation are those uh high frequency surveys i just mentioned so these mobile surveys but on top of that foundation they worked on uh what's now known as the hunger map live and i encourage people to go to hungermaplive.wfp.org to check it out but what it is it's uh, a map of the world on which you click through to see food security indicators for a large number of countries. I think they've got 80 countries up there. For instance, you're interested in Yemen. Maybe I'll pull it up right now. I was looking at it this morning. You're able to get a very quick read on uh, food insecurity levels. So Hunger Map, it's not Hunger Map Live, uh, hungermap.wfp.org, that's the correct address. So you'll see the map of the world pop up and you click on Yemen. And uh, what you'll see is that uh, Yemen's got 30 million people, 9.9 .9 people with insufficient food consumption. You've got trends over time. And that's something that's actually done. What's underneath all of this is, uh, is a machine learning algorithm that helps us uh, in areas where we're not able to collect data, estimate the uh, prevalence of food insecurity using other metrics. And these metrics include things like rainfall, vegetation, night lights, even previous survey results. And uh, the, the team at the hunger monitoring unit in Rome are able to 
leverage these different data sources, leverage Bayesian methods to provide a current estimate of food insecurity in places where we don't have any direct data. And I, th I think that's really wonderful. It helps fill a gap where we used to have a gray area and say we, we don't know or it's too dangerous. We're now able to say, here's what we think reality might be. I have seen that. And it, it remind me, um, Jean-Martin, is this um, a collaboration with Alibaba? It was, indeed. Right. I remember being at a presentation of that, I think, at the Ford Foundation a, a year ago or something. And That's right. It was super impressive. But it's using WFP data, but it, you're also pulling in other, other secondary data. Right. So the data I was mentioning uh, on satellite, that some of it comes from the European Space Agency, some comes from NASA. We've got food price data that comes from a combination of sources, uh, frequently national market information systems, or even WFP sub-offices, uh, humanitarians in the field collecting data themselves. And what's nice about this hunger map is that it, it does bring together all these strands to inform anyone about what's going on in, in, in these different geographies. It's a great application of machine learning and uh, data integration. It actually is. And it's presumably you have a version to inform your own operations and you have a public version? Or is it just you have a public version and everybody can access it? Well, the products are, we have internal products too. But the, what you'll find on the website now is actually quite detailed. Of course, there are versions we use for our internal planning purposes. And uh, what I do emphasize with people is that that map you have online on hungermap.wfp.org, it's not just electrons. It actually feeds into or advocacy or planning processes or decision making. The story I used to tell about, uh, this was a few years ago, we used mobile surveys in Iraq when uh, Iraq was going through the conflict with, uh, with ISIS. And by using mobile surveys, uh, we were very careful with them, by the way, because of the, the difficulties of the context. But we were able to determine that uh, the, the city of, um, this was Haditha, was going through uh, extreme food shortages. No one really knew what was going on in Haditha, but with mobile, we were able to get data. And uh, that information was provided to the WFP country director who got the entire UNCT in Iraq uh, to say, look, uh, there's a problem in Haditha. Let's, let's get organized. And uh, the team organized a convoy with enough food and assistance for 35,000 people. So that shows you that uh, this is not just a nice website. This data helps save lives. It has a direct operational impact. Yeah. No, that's great. Those are great examples. And what other initiatives? I know that you've done some work, I think, with Google. Is that right? Right. And the, we described uh, this in a, in a policy brief we submitted at the, uh, the recent forum on science, technology, and innovation here in New York. The point here is that we, the humanitarians, are now in a machine learning first environment, whether we like it or not. I mean, there, there are implications that we can discuss, Mark, but the we are in a machine learning first environment, and that means that the first numbers, the first estimates will come from an algorithm. I'm not saying machine learning only, but machine learning first, because that's the data's there and the machine will spit out a, an estimate of how many people need assistance or, or what areas are affected. And so this paper tells you about uh, how we use machine learning to map out structures that are damaged after a, a disaster. Think of, I'm sure you've all seen the, the commercials where you point your smartphone at, uh, at a tree or a plant and it tells you how old the tree is by counting the rings or, or the phone tells you what kind of weed is growing in your garden uh, when, when you just point your smartphone at it. It's, it's sort of the same thing, uh, except that here we use 
an algorithm to detect damaged buildings and uh, the product is a map that shows damaged buildings within uh, a specific area at high resolution. And what the paper tells you is that by using these techniques, so by acquiring imagery from either a private provider of very high high resolution satellite imagery or by flying a drone over the area, you feed that through the machine and in, in a few hours, in a couple of hours, you have your disaster map. You've got your map of all those buildings that are destroyed and the buildings that haven't been destroyed, by the way. So you, you get that. And that's uh, really changing the way we do work because in places like Beirut last August, uh, unfortunately suffered a, an explosion that flattened the entire city but caused extensive damage in Beirut and, and hurt a lot of people. In Beirut, it took weeks to, to do this inventory of, of damaged buildings. But with a project like the one we did with Google Research, which, uh, which is called Sky, managed out of our accelerator in Munich by my colleagues, uh, Kiriakos and Fiona, that was cut down to mere hours. And this is something we can replicate in other settings, in other emergency settings. And that just gives responders on the ground a leg up, more information to direct scarce resources and cut through that fog of war when the disaster hits. So another example of, of really getting to insights very fast, is WFP using that technology now, the Sky as you called it? So Sky's been, it's uh, at early phases. It's working out well on different data sets, but uh, it hasn't yet been used at scale. What we've been using is something called Deep. I know that there are a few projects around called oh, yes. Deep. Yes, yeah, it's a so popular name for, for me... AI projects. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, uh, let, let me just be clear. This is, this is not the other Deep. This is a... This is a, a machine algorithm that lives on a laptop, and it's also able to process imagery quite quite rapidly. That one we deployed in Mozambique during the uh, the two cyclones that took place. This was in 2019. Uh, there was a Idai and then Kenneth, mm-hmm. and the team there. And this is also explained in the uh, the policy brief and the blog post we we did uh, explains how we were able to work with the Mozambican authorities and the disaster management authority to tease out the benefits of, of imagery that's acquired through drones after disasters to, to support the response. And what was nice in this scenario is that the Mozambicans were, were able to, uh, to leverage these tools themselves. And uh, we were sort of in a position where we're facilitating, we're handing over a tool uh, to the government in a situation where there's a, a major emergency. And we know that Mozambique will be able to use these tools in the future. I mean, that sounds fantastic. and and. Presumably, from what you're saying, the machine learning is pretty accurate. So it must require human it's, human level kind of analysis on top of that, but it must make everything much faster. In all cases, it's above 80%. So some people might say, but wait, that's, uh, that's not 100% accurate. Well, let me tell you that humans make mistakes too. And you also want to make sure that at some point you do have humans going around to, to spot check or verify and also have a mechanism for people to report so they're not left out. But having something that's 80% in a fast-breaking emergency is super helpful. So the other interesting thing with Deep is that we worked with the emergency telecommunications cluster, the ETC. And uh, this is one of the clusters. So I'm, I'm speaking in jargon here, but the UN humanitarian responses are led through the cluster system. So there's a cluster for each uh, sector of need. There's a cluster for water and sanitation, uh, one for food and agriculture. And you get the idea. And there's one for telecommunications and this means by being based in the emergency telecommunications cluster, other agencies have the ability to, to really be stakeholders and be involved in the project. So again, this 
there are many reasons to like what uh, what Deep is doing, but its home in the uh, ETC is really uh, something that could be leveraged by the entire sector. No, that's great. I've been in some ETC meetings in the past, actually. It's a great forum for yeah. for kind of propagating new ideas and sharing new ideas. And, you know, I have to say 80% for machine learning in a pilot phase is pretty good because you're going to be continuously improving and training that machine up. Um, so I wanted to zoom out a little bit and, and just, I mean, you've highlighted some really interesting projects. And, you know, generally WFP has been really effective at using data and technology and making an impact, whether it's in its operations or more directly helping people. If you had a recipe for success, um, what would that be? I mean, is it, um, is it the fact that WFP has resources that it can invest in these things? Is it that it just has a vast amount of operational data already, so it doesn't have to start trying, you know, one of the challenges in our community is data sharing and trying to get the governance to enable that? Or is it that you've, you've actively been partnering with, you know, tech companies and coming up with very good partnerships that have an impact? Or is it something else? <laughs> I didn't want to well, narrow it down into those three. The place I usually start with WFP, we're very operational, uh, and that's... Um, that comes with its pros and cons, uh, but one of the pros is that we, uh, we are problem solvers. And when there's a new technology that can help us do our job better, people tend to be open to it. Of course, you'll get questions, uh, but you'll, you'll usually get uh, authorization to, to check it out, to pilot, to, to improve. So there's, there's some appetite for risk, some appetite for new things. And that's why you might have seen WFP be an, an early adopter of some technologies, maybe not all of them, but some of them uh, were, were out there. Were, we, UNICEF is a lot like us, by the way. We, we also have that operational mindset. Now, it, it's also, it's a lot of pressure because you, 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 need to, you need to feed the children, you need to provide uh, urgent assistance. And we, so we don't always think as strategically as we should, uh, but the result is we, we, we can come up with very practical solutions to the problems. And I think that's why you see us um, I mean, I talked about mobile surveys earlier, but we're talking about computer vision for disaster assessments. That's why you might be seeing WFP uh, uh, push this forward. And that's why you might be seeing an agency like UNICEF do things like uh, drones for vaccine delivery, um, because we have that pressure to deliver. That's really the starting point. The results really matter for us. We're voluntarily funded and you deliver or you die. Um, we don't have a pot of money sitting that comes in from the member countries every year to, to save us. So we, we need to be efficient. We need to walk the, the walk uh, in a sense. I really think that's the starting point. But what's made things work at WFP is there are pretty strong capacities uh, in the organization. If, if you look at, uh, for instance, what the technology department does at WFP, it's a very strong division. We do have the partners that are, that are on board. The donors that support WFP, again, were 100% voluntarily funded, they accept this of us and they, they actually re require us to think in different ways and, and we're always under pressure to do things uh, better. And to get back to the questions you were asking earlier with the recipe for success is I think we've got a good example at the, the pipeline for innovation at WFP. So you, you've got ideas that might come out of the research department where I used to work. You've got uh, good ideas that could come out of the, you know, the school feeding or the, the nutrition department. And then they'll go to the accelerator. We have an innovation accelerator at WFP that works with the private sector, that works with government, with, uh, we've got German government support for, for, for this accelerator. And uh, there's also access to German state government resources, both financial and uh, 
and, and, and in terms of expertise that come to this accelerator and help us brainstorm the solutions for, for hunger. And I realize that this is not um, that common in, in the humanitarian system. Uh, and, and I've been in New York for five months now, and uh, I hear people calling out for spaces where government, private sector, and uh, humanitarians can come together to discuss issues. And I realize that we've, we've got that. We've had that since 2016 at WFP, and it explains why we've got more confidence. But to go back to the pipeline, you've got that business unit that states a problem, it goes to the accelerator, and then when it needs to be scaled up, it goes to the technology division. And they have the, uh, I'd say, the resources and the, the capacity and the expertise to scale a solution uh, to, to the countries we work in. So that's the way we do it, and I think that's part of the reason we're successful at some of these projects. Right, no thanks. That's a really, really interesting outline you've given there, because what you're saying really is that because WFP has to deliver and has this problem-solving drive to it, it has a, a risk appetite for trying things out differently, which is not necessarily the case in other organizations in our sector, UN or other. And then you, you have got the capacity, you've got donors that will accept the risk as well, even though you're voluntary, and they expect you, in fact, to do the things differently. But that pipeline for innovation is is key too. And, you know, I, I actually had the pleasure to, I was invited to sit through one of the Munich Accelerator sessions. I don't know what you yeah. call them. Uh, the, the boot camps. Equivalent. Boot they camps, whatever. Yeah. Boot camp. That's right. right. I came in at the tail end of one and it was, uh, there were a couple of initiatives. There was one that I knew about, which is called Balcony, which is a geo-messaging system, which mm-hmm. has been developed out in California, has got some really interesting um, capabilities and that was being presented. And I think as a result of that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but WFP country offices can watch this or expected to come in and watch this. And then they'll call down and say, yes, we'd like to try this out, try that out. And in the case of that geomessaging solution, I think they're testing it out in Afghanistan now. That's exactly it. And they're good at organizing events, at uh, generating excitement at the country office level and with our partners too. So, yeah. Brilliant. No, thanks. And so if you had advice for others in the humanitarian domain that were maybe not, you know, do they need to improve their risk appetite? What would you say to you know, agencies, I was going to say UN agencies, but it's not only UN agencies that, ha- that you know, have, have maybe maybe approached this in a less risky way. Are there things look, that they can do? Look, I, I think we, we need to embrace this. That's shorthand for the major changes that are taking place. So sooner or later, you need to get with the program. Um, I think uh, Patrick Meyer, he uses that phrase when he talks to us, and it, it does make sense that the world is shifting beneath our feet and in order to stay relevant, we really have no choice but to change. But I'd say if, if you're looking to, to change the way you're, you're doing things, the best solution is to network. And I, I'm seeing that, um, well, first of all, there are more and more entities that work on innovation at the United Nations. I was told uh, by, by someone who counted them all that there are 65 distinct innovation structures at the UN. So. You can see that two ways, as in, now ah, the UN is really embracing innovation, or, wow, what a mess. But the message is you've got uh, people out there uh, who've gone through it before and who can help you out. And uh, there's the UN Innovation Network in New York that's a great place to, uh, to exchange ideas. A humanitarian AI trip organizes meetups that I'll be pleased to attend as soon. Well, New York just reopened, so I'm sure we'll have a, a face-to-face fairly soon. Um, but network, 
use the open source solutions. Money's always an obstacle, but there's a lot you can do with open source, at least to start with, and then you can move on to something else if you're uh, if that doesn't work for you. Leverage working with universities. If you're lucky enough to be in a city with, uh, I mean, not everyone's in New York, but but if, you, if you're in a city with a university, uh, it's always a great place to go for expertise, enthusiasm, ideas. The I think that's part of the the way forward. That's really good advice. And I think underpinning that is the fact that no matter what challenge we tend to tackle in our space, someone else is either tackling the same challenge or has got a solution for it. Yeah. So if you try and do it in a silo, you're not going to get the answer. So network and connect up. And that innovation network that I think WFP and UNICEF initiated is definitely helping kind of get concepts and ideas and approaches across the system, at least in the UN system. So I had a, a broader question coming back to data analytics. Some of the projects you've been mentioning uh, and that we're aware of, we're using data analytics and AI to help us improve the system, the humanitarian system we currently have. There's been a lot of emphasis about efficiency and effectiveness, and you know we'd all agree that it can be a lot more effective and a lot more efficient. And while that probably still need, could be, you know, even more effective and efficient than we currently have and, and move towards greater impact, there's many people that see the system we have as too top down and not as accountable as it could be to the people we're trying to help. And so the question really was, is there a role for technologies and AI to try and help us redesign that, to almost flip that system? Uh, you know, are, are you... Are there any examples that you're aware of where that's happening? Um, are there technologies really making headway into being able to empower communities in, in ways that we haven't done in the past? Mark, you're absolutely right where we could be more efficient, but what we need to do is completely shift the way the humanitarian community interfaces with the people receive the, the assistance. We need to be able to listen and we need to give more agency, more, more power, more bargaining power to those communities. Now, how does AI empower that? I think we will see examples of uh, community projects leveraging AI, but I always see the, the big monopoly holding the data or holding the platform behind it. So I, I'm, uh, I'd, I'd love to be more optimistic about the promise of AI to disrupt uh, the world for better. But what I really see is that a lot of the data used to generate AI comes from uh, data monopolies, that there's really no other way to... Um, to describe the, the companies that hold most of the data. I'm, I'm not sure of the percentage mark, but if you look at Google, Facebook, Amazon, and you know, I'm sure they provide valuable services to society, but they, they also hold, I think the percentage is, is probably above 80%. I mean, I'm not, maybe we'll just need to check that, but the um, of, of all the data that's out there. So if, if you want to do AI, go through them, uh, because the only way you'll train your, your algorithms is through the data that they hold. And even the, uh, the satellite imagery data I was telling you about, well, if you're lucky, you'll get imagery from NASA or the European Space Agency, but Google has uh, most of the uh, satellite imagery right now. I'm wondering if we're going to be, uh, we the humanitarians, in a situation where we are hat in hand in front of uh, Google and Facebook uh, asking or begging for access to their data in order to continue providing services. The question you're asking about how we actually empower people, I think that's going to have to go through a, a discussion around what open AI, open forms of collaboration could deliver. Now, here in New York, we talk a lot about digital public goods. It's something colleagues at UNICEF have worked a lot on. 
and I'm hoping to see in the future products that are free, that are open, that anyone can use, that anyone can reuse, that anyone can improve upon to break that or to mitigate the, the risk of, of us just having to, to deal with, with large data and monopolies. And that this is something we need to articulate. So I, I said earlier that we're entering the era of machine learning first for humanitarian assessments, but that just has a lot of implications. And if we want to empower people, that has a lot of implications. The time is right for the community to start asking itself or to be challenged about how do we do this right? How do we get to a place where we empower? I mean, we've seen things about AI for fraud detection or AI for, for mapping, which is, you know, that exists, but AI to truly empower, I haven't seen it yet. Right. No, that's interesting Sorry. points because I think within the sector, there is a, a perception maybe around data and AI as analysis that we can, you know, we can access our data and we can run predictive analytics or whatever we want on it. And that will give us some outcomes and we can make some advances. But I mean, coming back to your point, are we just operating in a small style of information? Yes, we may have primary information on a crisis, but to your point, analysis where you're tapping into the vast reams of Google and Facebook and the data that's owned that is behind kind of firewalls, that would release a lot more insights. But there's obviously lots of data protection issues and governance issues around that. I mean, that brings me on to another last point. I mean, you may have already part answered it, actually. Uh, you know, if we look ahead to the future, the sector is moving so fast. I mean, you, you, you go back 10 years and I think back to the disaster uh, relief report 2.0, if people can remember that. And uh, it was, uh, there was a lot, it, it was on the back of the Haiti, actually. Uh, That's right. That uh, was the, the, the big disaster about 10 years ago. That's uh, yeah. And it, a lot of it, I mean, not all of it, a lot of it was around how are we going to interact with these, these new volunteer groups, these social media groups. A lot of it was about, uh, you know, using social media and, and the new communications technologies that we had at the time. It's things have advanced dramatically since then. Um, I mean, what do you, you know, we're still grappling in the humanitarian space with issues around data governance, data sharing, privacy protection, access to data engineering, access to data science, scientists. Um, but things nevertheless are moving very, very fast, certainly outside of the sector. And, and you know, as we're building new partnerships with the commercial and private sector, I mean, how do you see uh, the future? What do you see in the next few years? that you think is particularly striking for the humanitarian community? Well, I would say for us, within the community, the way we manage our offices, I'd say AI has, it's very uneven. So I'm sure that if, you, if you'd ask any UN agency, they would show you an AI project that they're proud of. But those are external facing, and I'm wondering whether we're engaging in a little bit of AI theater when the big wins for AI are actually internal. It's deploying business AI into our invoicing, human resourcing, contracting, uh, fleet management. That's where the big win is for the agencies, uh, supply chain management. Uh, not necessarily the, uh, we've seen a lot, I think, with, with, with assessments. So the risk would be that uh, we develop these outward facing AI applications uh, without really using AI inside to leverage the large efficiencies that could be gained from using those types of, uh, of tools inside. 
for instance, right now, anyone in the U.S. will uh, no one ever mails in a, a check anymore. You you have an application on your phone. You take a picture of the check, and it's debit. Well, it's credited to your account uh, immediately. Um, we don't do that at the UN yet, so <laughs> it's, just, it's it's things like that. That uh, so I think it's quite uneven. So you hear me talking about drones and uh, computer vision, but you know we still have a, a yeah. So it's very uneven inside the house. But then I think that the future for us is going to be uh, making sure the the lagging parts of the system or the or of the house, whatever the the situation is, catch up to industry standard. As you said, Mark, uh, the private sector is way uh, is way ahead. But then I think the larger question is really how uh, this impacts communities. What we can expect in the next few years, the question you just asked, uh, what's staring us in the face is uh, algorithmic decision-making on, on targeting transfers. There's a, a good example of that. Uh, the uh, uh, colleagues at Give Directly worked with the Togolese government. This was late last year and uh, continued, I think it continued into 2021, but they have a very interesting project where they combined analysis of call detail records and um, geospatial analysis to target people for a COVID relief program. And if, if you're someone in rural Togo, you would see uh, an ad somewhere that would say, do you want, uh, I forget how much the transfer was, but let's assume it's $20. It says, do you want a $20 transfer? Text this number. So people would uh, text that number. And if they were eligible, they'd get an SMS back saying, yes, you're eligible. And they'd get a mobile money transfer. And the way that happened is that uh, GiveDirectly was able to identify the areas within Togo using uh, geospatial analysis. They were able to pinpoint the most vulnerable locations in Togo. And with the CDR, they were able to target the most, uh, well, CDRs correlate with poverty. And they, they were able to identify these cell phone users with the, the profile, the Twitter profile, the poverty profile. And they targeted them for the cash transfer. So all of that's automatic. Of course, the person receiving the transfer has to self-register by sending an SMS to the number, but that's very, very different from the way we do it now. I was doing, uh, about this, this time last year, I was in Brazzaville trying to organize cash transfers in response to COVID-19. And uh, we had the, the teams going around the neighborhoods, going door to door, counting people's, um, we were doing the proxy means tests, The the registries with the different authorities at the neighborhood level, at the, the um, municipality level. It was all very, very complicated. It, it took it took weeks to, to get a list that we could actually use for distributions. But what Give Directly has shown is possible in Togo, in full collaboration with the Togolese government, is so that you can automate all of this and that AI can uh, deliver huge gains in terms of, of time. Now, the question is, did they target the right people? What was the, the inclusion, the exclusion? And uh, I really look forward to, to seeing more findings. But that's what the future is bringing. Yeah, thanks. That's a really interesting model. And I kind of, uh, I'm just thinking ahead and coupling that with another initiative I've come across. And I'm not sure if we're allowed to talk about blockchain on a humanitarian AI podcast, but it will anyway. But really briefly, and I, you may have come across similar uh, you know, so the initiative is really around community empowerment using blockchain as well as mobile apps to basically bring a community together where you have a token system and they're able to uh, exchange values, you know, whether it's go down and, and get assistance or food at a food bank or whatever it is. Um, and actually, this particular initiative I know is being tested out in a non-humanitarian context. So, And then coupling what you've just described to that, I wonder if those are two pieces, you know, two initiatives 
community empowerment and also that using that AI to really target people very carefully, which has also obviously got community participation in it too. I wonder if that's an indication of what's to come. Right. I mean, I've, I've been hearing a lot of excitement around uh, crypto, around blockchain, and uh, I think I've, I've actually seen a few examples of where it's, it's really made a difference in, in a value chain, for example. So I'm, I'm more of a food person, so apologies if I go back to that all the time. But uh, the, what Oxfam did with rice farmers in Cambodia, for instance, they were for, for the first time able to see what was going on in the value chain thanks to a blockchain and get better prices as, as a result of, you know, that's, that's something that can change your life as opposed to, you know, doing an AI for ourselves, ourselves being the humanitarian community. So Right. Yeah, that's it. So hopefully we'll see more of that kind of technology Absolutely. exactly being designed to help people directly. Hey, it's been a real pleasure having this conversation with you. I think we're up for time. Is there anything that you think humanitarian AI members could do for yourself or, or WFP or if there's anything your team could use help with? Look, uh, the problem we have at WFP is that we're in Rome in Italy. So it's, um, it's not always at the cutting edge of developments in, in the tech space. So if you have ideas that you think we need to know about, one of my roles here in New York is picking that up and, and sharing it with a colleague. So you know, feel free to tag me on Twitter uh, at Bauer underscore JN. You know, let me know what's going on. And um, again, you'll see with WP that we're, um, we, we will listen. We're interested. We're not going to say yes to everything that's offered, but we are looking for good ideas that can make a difference in in the world. And then maybe the, the last thing I'd say, Mark, is it was a pleasure to talk to you today. And we said it before in the podcast, but what really matters is I mean, we talked a lot about machines today, but it's people that count. And we're, we're doing this to, to make a difference for, for people. Let's not lose sight of that. Great point to close on. I say it's been a great discussion. Thanks so much. This is Mark Dalton, your guest host. And this brings us to an end of this edition of Humanitarian AI Today. Thank you for joining us from all your different parts of the world. Thanks very much, Yomata.